when we turned the fire simulations for the first time and with eyes and everything, she was terrifying. She was like a Balrog from the Lord of the Rings coming out of Mordor. Like she was a really, the fire was so realistic and so busy. And uh, to try to sort of control it and harness, we needed a, a lot of new technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and joining me this week is, uh, he's one of the creators this week. He's EW's resident Oscars expert, <laughs> Joey Nolfi. Hi, Joey. How are you? You got, you got to it before I did oh. this week, and I just, speaking of content creation i wish that everybody could have heard jared's countdown that he gave me <laughs> for this recording it was a mix between the tootsie owl. pop owl and also jared leto and house of gucci oh. oh i didn't think of that you know when people ask me what my name is i have to say jared like leto uh-huh well you should just now say jared like, like gucci. gucci jared like gucci yeah why not yeah. why not mm -hmm. um so this week joey we are exploring Nature. Did you know that? Um, specifically, water, fire, wind, earth, because they're all... Not walking children in nature? No, no, not walking children. But they are all elements of nature, which are all at the center of Disney Pixar's Elemental. And uh, later in the episode, I'm sitting down with the director, Peter Sohn. Um, let's talk about this movie a second, Joey, because it opened uh, in mid-June, just shy of $30 million. Not great. Uh, and by the way, even Peter Stone, you'll hear him say he was heartbroken by that. Um, but then domestically, I mean, it, things took off. Well, things took off around the world for this movie, but domestically it topped $154 million. Worldwide took in almost $500 million. Um, but that said, which, which is great, that ended up being great business for this film uh, and things really turned around for it. But that said, it it is one of Disney's bigger movies in recent years. They've not all been performing at a certain type of level that we expect. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think Elemental was a casualty of this. We've seen them do this with they changed their model, I think, recently when it comes to their animated movies outside of a few titles that did go to theaters like Encanto and Lightyear. But you see other titles like Onward, um, Seeing Red, these these movies turning that red sort of are turning red. They mm -hmm. went to um I was thinking of Valerie Cherish there for a moment, seeing red. Um, but uh, she <laughs> imagined Valerie Cherish in a Pixar movie, um, but <laughs> huge box office. <laughs> yeah. Huge box office. Yes. <laughs> but they, Disney, I think ruined that while trying to, you know, get subscri subscribers to Disney plus by putting these things on Disney plus, I think that they've also watered down their brand a little bit. I think they've conditioned their audience to think, well, I'm just going to see it on Disney Plus eventually. So there's no real incentive to go to the theater to see this animated movie that because how many of their recent Pixar films have gone to Disney Plus over mm -hmm. theaters, especially during the pandemic. And I think you're seeing this also happen. Uh, it's also taking an, a, a toll on things like Marvel and Star Wars because you're just putting all of this content like TV shows, the, all the Marvel TV shows that they have and the Star Wars TV shows that they have. You're watering down your own brand. You're putting these things 
into such an accessible state on Disney Plus to try to convert subscribers there that you're making it less of a spectacle and a blockbuster event for movie theaters. So mm-hmm. I think that's why we're seeing a downturn in box office for a lot of these things, especially Marvel. Uh, Marvel domestically has been doing worse and worse with like each release that's getting out worldwide that it's still doing well. But at yes. least in the United States, you're seeing a lot of Disney properties just sort of take a nosedive with box office. And it's it's really concerning. And I think that's what hurt something also like Haunted Mansion this year, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 very odd and it'll be interesting to see how they get out of this. But yeah. Elemental, yes, is a one of my favorite movies of the year yeah. it's just so good it's so 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 good yeah i love it uh by the way i also think haunted mansion opened at the completely wrong time of year oh uh, totally we're, yes. we're talking in the week of halloween and which is when the movie should have opened but yeah that's agreed. neither here nor there we are not um yes. we are not executives at studios so what do we know <laughs> um yes i i agree with you i love this movie so so much and i'm i'm sad that i didn't um see it sooner than i did um but in terms of elemental, it is certainly high up, uh, you know, on a lot of, of pundits' list. What what do you think it has going for it to help secure that coveted best animated feature Oscar nomination? I mean, the the box office is just proof that I think word of mouth is catching on, and once people do watch this thing, they they spread the word that it is definitely the kind of power that you want going into an awards race because. You sort of slip under the radar and then you also build good word of mouth in the process, which Mm -hmm. doesn't put a target on your back. You kind of become like a stealth contender. And I think that I think that we often forget when talking about business and track record and statistics is just the quality of a movie. I mean, Elemental was I I don't think it was very popular with kids because it is a more complex narrative. It is that I think might go over some kids heads if they're too young and not and going in expecting like an all out children's fantasy movie, which Pixar and Disney, they always have a, a sort of elevated edge to them. They're not just cheap cartoons, but this one I think especially has more mature themes that some kids might not be able to pick up on yet. And it just hits hard in, in ways that it's, I think it sometimes approaches like profound emotions in this yeah. movie. And I, the I story would argue just, in the same kind of way that inside out did that as well. Yes. Yes. I think inside out was a bit more, it leaned a bit more into the cartoony, whimsical um, imagery, I think, than Elemental does. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. although Elemental does have really great, I mean, the soundtrack, yeah, this, that, that score is is just breathtaking. And the animation here is just so cool. But I do think there's a long periods of like dialogue and mm-hmm. uh, exploring these really sort of complex emotions that mm-hmm. are not as easily accessible as the things in inside out so yeah. i think that it has that going for it too it, it it feels more like a what people would consider a like a to come from a live action movie than mm-hmm. something else that disney or pixar has put out yeah completely agree with that and and uh, just as a little bit more of a tease i mean we'll hear uh peter stone talk about just how difficult it was to get that animation right, that animation that you love so much, Joey. Uh, I mean, you know, they had to create new technologies for it. <laughs> they yeah. went through they went yeah. through a lot of tests where he said some of the characters were just downright scary. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and, and they started to worry that, um, you know, they started to worry whether they were really going to be able to do what they wanted to do. Um, okay, so, so more elemental. That. I know, right? So more elemental coming up a bit later. Uh, let's talk about this. Last week... 
Ketchup Entertainment uh, bought domestic distribution. Uh, hey, now, don't laugh at their name. <laughs> Seeing red. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they bought domestic distribution for director Michel Franco's film Memory, which uh, stars Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard, the latter of whom won Best Actor at the Venice Film Festival. I remember right after Venice, we were talking about you know, of course, like Kaylee Spaney won Best Actress, and like that's great. That that certainly helps her in her awards race. But we kind of brushed over Peter Sarsgaard because the movie didn't have distribution. Well, now here we go. Um, they they are in it. So how uh, does this movie getting the distribution and it's going to be released in December impact the race? Well, you know that um, coveted ketchup entertainment distribution slot um each year they they are, they're coming for best picture um no I, should, I i honestly and this is not a dig at i have never heard of ketchup entertainment so i'll have to do some research on them i i don't know who's behind that i don't know if they're new so maybe they do have yeah really powerful people running them i i honestly have no idea who they are um but i think the only race it sort of stands to shake up is best actor. I, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but like at least one acting nominee a year in recent years wins a prize at Venice. And this year, Kaylee Spaney and Priscilla won best actress. So I assumed it would be her, but if a movie is getting acquired this late in the game and also getting distribution for this year after being acquired so late, I think you only do that for awards positioning purposes. So I think Peter could have some traction in the race coming up, but I don't, I, yeah, I, yeah, might, I, might I think there's, to say. yeah, there's, there's too, too little information that I yeah. have about get, get yeah. up entertainment. By the way, I should tell everyone what this movie is about because uh, even I wasn't sure. Uh, so here is from an, an, uh, an official synopsis from the studio. Memory follows Sylvia, played by Jessica Chastain, uh, who is a social worker who leads a simple and structured life until Saul, played by Peter Sarsgaard, follows her home from their high school reunion. Their surprise encounter will profoundly impact both of them as they open the door to the memories, challenges, and revelations that will leave a lasting impact. Hmm. Yeah, I also think in going with the red theme here, um, Jessica Chastain... (laughs) So, um, (laughs) we we have quite a, quite a, um, a a crimson lineup. Yeah, we do for sure. Okay. But let me ask you this in recent years, have there been any other, what I'm kind of calling quote unquote late entries into the Mm. race that shook things up? Yeah. It's a different kind of movie, but something like american sniper holding its debut Mm. until afi in november of 2014 that sort of really shook up the race also ava duvernay's selma that same year it had the same debut timeline as american sniper and both got nominations for best picture uh more recently i think you could look at something like netflix withholding don't look up until december 2021 and annapurna also holding vice until december 2018 but those movies premises i think lent better to you know being more inherently appealing to voters in hollywood so i think they're both different stories this one still seems pretty small i did just google catch up entertainment's roster 
and they do not have a strong track record of like giant movies or awards contenders. So yeah, probably going nowhere. This this could be what sets them on that path, though. We shall it see. It could be the it just takes one garnish of a lifetime on <laughs> it, their Oscars it feast. It could indeed. It could indeed. And by the way, uh, a trailer just debuted last week as well for a movie that um, is kind of quietly debuting at the end of December. I believe it's a Christmas Day release. Freud's Last Session with Anthony Hopkins, who won uh, Best Actor a couple years ago. Matthew Good is also in that. Um, we know how, you know, a, a certain demographic of the Academy loves themselves a Sir Anthony Hopkins uh, and he is playing Sigmund Freud. I'm wondering if that one might pick up some traction late in the game as well. I don't know. No, <laughs> you're you're pretty you're pretty set on that yeah. one. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, you mentioned AFI. That is uh, that has been happening. New York Film Fest uh, wrapped. Now Patrick uh, Gomez, our editor in chief, and I were both at uh, SCAD Savannah Film Festival uh, this past weekend. Um, which, by the way, SCAD Savannah. I, I, I'm mentioning that not necessarily as a film that, or a festival that um, predicts uh, award winners, but I will say they had a lot of contenders there this year. Poor things. Saltburn, All of Us Strangers, American Fiction, The Holdovers, Maestro, May, December, Nyad, Priscilla, Rustin, The Zone of Interest. Um, so, uh, by the way, kudos to them uh, for that lineup. Uh, and I do have to say, Saltburn, All of Us Strangers, and Poor Things, I do know for sure, played very well there. That's not to say that the others didn't, but I know for sure that those did. But anyway, all that to say, one of those films, Nyad, is uh, now on Netflix. Uh, that is anchored by performances from Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. This is a movie that when it was announced, I recall a lot of the, the social media chatter being, ah, this is Annette's Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do got to say, she is treading some choppy waters right now to get that nomination. Do you think this is one where not being able to do press because of the strike hurts her? I think if she faces many obstacles, uh, you could compare it to swimming through an ocean of ketchup. Um, she, <laughs> it, it, it will be very, You're it fired. will be very <laughs> difficult for her, I think, to to overtake once uh emma stone starts getting seen wider in poor things i think it's it's going to be over uh carrie mulligan too i think once people start seeing maestro wider i think they're going to start to see that the film itself isn't so strong and they might start rallying around carrie so it might be easier for carrie to to sort of boost up that way and also i I think color purple is also coming to shake up this race Uh, i think unfortunately annette uh, she does have the overdue narrative that worked for people like Julianne Moore in the recent past, but I don't know that Annette is as much of a, what's the right word? Like, I, th- I still feel like Julianne was at the top of her game sort of still when she was in contention for still Alice, she was still doing really interesting little prestige project projects. She was still doing blockbusters. Annette seems to, to not be doing as much recently. And when she does do stuff, it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be stuff that interests her versus things that are necessarily 
going to be buzzy or Oscar Beatty or so I think she's just in this phase of her career where she's just doing whatever makes her happy and doing whatever roles she likes. So I'm not sure she's in the same position as somebody like Julianne Moore. Even Jessica Chastain had an overdue narrative when she won two years ago. So I think it's going to hurt her in the long run. Um, And also this movie just seems to be after getting so much praise on the festival circuit, it just seems to just kind of quietly in theaters. Now it's dropping on streaming this Friday. It's just kind of like, I do we really see Nyad being a movie that a bunch of people are going to watch on Netflix? Maybe who knows? And with a campaign uh, with the people behind it, like Netflix has working for them right now. I mean, it's, it, it very well could uh, could happen because when they're pushing that film, they're only going to be pushing those two actresses. So Exactly. Yeah. And and it's worth noting, they also, of course, have, like you said, they have Maestro. They have May, December. You were yeah. talking about Julianne Moore. There she is. Uh, also Natalie Portman. It's like, I don't in that get one. that. Like when you, that's what I don't get sometimes about, you know, th- these award strategies is how are you going to set all of these movies that have such strong best actress contenders, how mm-hmm. are you going to release all of these at the same time and sort of put money into their campaigns? It just, it doesn't make sense. Like you have, yeah, yeah. They are their own big yeah, competition. It, this it, year. it makes, it makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and, um, and to your point, like you said, Naya just doesn't have the, like, it doesn't have the fanfare right now, but it doesn't have but, the cool so, factor either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, her, her performance is, she's, she is fantastic in it. I will say, and she, um, she gives a, uh, she is full, fully committed to all, you know, becoming Diana Nyad in terms of her, her body and all of the swimming that she did, the training she did. So, uh, she's great in it, as is Jodie Foster. So uh, I hope we see some love for them. But I think, yeah, uh, it, it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle. Because best actress, what do we have? I, I wrote out, I came prepared this time, and I wrote <laughs> out everyone who I think, and I ranked them in order of where I think they stand right now. So mm-hmm. I think right now it's Emma Stone in Poor Things, mm-hmm. Kaylee Spaney for Priscilla, mm-hmm. Carrie Mulligan and Maestro, and then... This is where I have Annette for Nyad, but I do think she's falling. Um, Sandra for Anatomy of a Fall. Lily for Killers of the Flower Moon, just because I'm not sure that you can sustain all throughout Oscar season if you're laying in a bed sick for 75% of a movie. Like, I just don't know that she has enough, like, I I, I don't know. You you know, I just, and that's not a knock against. Right the performance or anything i just don't know that that is going to if people are going to be thinking that immediately when they're thinking of of best actress um after her i think fantasia barino uh could creep in there for color purple Margot also i think is facing a really tough uphill battle for barbie too as these other contenders start to sort of rise up around her and then I have Natalie Portman for May, December, Greta Lee for Past Lives, and uh, I think this is 10, 10 or 11, but uh, Tayana Taylor for 1001. It's a tough year. Uh, yeah. Just looking at all the all the acting categories, there are easily 8, 9, 10 who you're just like, oh, yeah. they should all be nominated. Um, yep. So the next couple months are going to get really interesting for oh, yes. sure. Yep. All right. Well, uh, we are going to pause for a second, take a quick break. But when we come back, uh, we are getting elemental. 
that didn't really make sense, but I'm going to commit to it. I also want to add just one more thing. Um, uh-huh. It's going to get even crazier for Best Actress once Netflix re-enters Naomi Watts for Penguin Bloom into this race. All right, the awardist will be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to The Awardist. Uh, it is one of my favorite movies that uh, uh, of this year that I have only just recently seen, I'm ashamed to say, but it is so good. Uh, word of mouth helped boost it at the box office, and that could very well help boost it in this awards race. So uh, let's get right to it. Uh, I'm talking about the film Elemental, and here now is my interview with that film's director, Peter Sohn. Peter Sohn, thank you so much for being here with us on The Awardist. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me, Jared. I really appreciate this. Of course. I'm really thrilled to talk to you about this movie because um, admittedly it is one that I did not see right when it opened, but um, I've had a chance to check it out, um, you know, in the months after. And um, I'm so sad that I hadn't seen it sooner because I feel like it's a movie I would have watched like five times by now, as is often the case with, you know, Disney and Pixar movies. It's one of those you can just kind of go back to over and over again. But yeah, let's talk about that a bit because you've had uh, several months distance from this film. It opened uh, June 14th, middle of June. Let's go through some of the numbers. $29.6 million opening weekend. Yeah. Went on to make $154 million domestically, $495 million worldwide. As the summer went on, the, the phrases sleeper hit and stealth box office hit were used uh, around this movie. Personally, what were your hopes for the film? Like, what would have made you happy? Having the film connect in the way that it has now was always the hope. I mean, so much of this, the messaging, the film, it's a love story, it's a romance, and yeah. it's about people from opposite ends of the world connecting. And uh, But then there's also a parent-daughter love story in there. And so wanting audiences to connect to those you know, the pieces of the lives that could that we were trying to show in the film was the whole goal uh, more than anything. And, and look, it was a really personal place for me because I lost my parents through the making of this. So there was a little bit of yeah. trying to honor our parents and all the sacrifices that they've made for us. And uh, mm-hmm. when so when the film, you know, opened to those numbers, it just felt like, oh, people were not interested or people weren't connecting to it. And so I was, it was, I was heartbroken. It was a really sort of dark time because, you know, you just want the movie to connect. But as you were saying, there was this sort of slow build that uh, I started getting yeah. emails from um, some coworkers telling me like, hey, um, something else is going on week to week here. And uh, I really didn't understand what it was. I was in that sort of place of like, I guess the film won't connect. But then it became... Uh, this really emotional ride where it started building. I, people were talking about finally seeing the movie and connecting to it. And uh, um, it started lifting up, you know, and filling up the heart. And uh, yeah. I'm so grateful uh, that it, it started to find its audience, you know. Yeah. Was there anything internally that you guys then like figured out, like what was creating that, that build? Or was it just kind of a like word of mouth took over? All we had kept hearing was word of mouth, meaning someone would yeah. see it, enjoyed it, and recommended it to someone else. And uh, that became so meaningful. I had always heard the term word of mouth. I've always understood it in this sort of, like, the context of just like a summer. But when you are living that, uh, uh, it really 
um, becomes very moving, Jared. I'm telling you, the, the idea of millions of people watching it and then telling someone else that they connected to the film uh, was something that the crew and I are very proud of. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I, I guess the lesson there is movies will find their way. Yeah, movies will find their way. And, uh, um, you know, this one, in the way that it did, it did huge in Korea, in South Korea. Mm. And my parents are from there. And so there was this sort of, I got emails from like, your parents are looking down on you. And uh, my oh, God, I can't tell you how emotional some of those oh. um, messages became because of of the context of how we were making the film, you know. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, with, uh, you know, kind of hearing that people were, were telling other people, go see this movie, we're connecting. Were you scrolling social media to see what, um, you know, especially parents were saying about the film and stuff like that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Jared, I, I, you know, in the beginning, social media was sort of tough. They hadn't seen the film yet. And there was a lot of tough remarks on it. And so I stopped looking at it. You know, I was just like, well, I guess that's uh, the meaning like critics. Oh, well, I think it was just audience that hadn't seen the film and were just judging it for what other mm. people were saying. Um, but um, then as it started to grow, my um, social media started to fill up with messages from around the world, from, from Latin America, from Europe, from Asia, from, from everywhere, uh, from America, of, of people connecting to it in a really deep way, from both the, uh, talking about their relationships in their life between someone they had fallen in love with and had lost or um, stories of parents having made a journey from one place to another and uh, um, uh, all sorts of different ways that people have experienced first gen, second gen culture clash, but also um, um, love that uh, is, is quote unquote, you know, um, um, opposites. And uh, uh, yeah, it filled it up and uh, I'm still reading them and they continue to, move them. I've been passing them off to the crew and uh, continuing to just um, um, share with everybody how the film's been connecting. Yeah, of course. I love hearing that. Um, You know, a a handful of uh, Pixar movies in recent years, they've kind of bypassed studios and went directly to Disney Plus. Um, Onward uh, in February 2020, Soul later that year, Luca uh, in 2021, and then Turning Red, uh, which was early 2022 do, do you feel like that's that was really kind of like purely the pandemic was to blame there and and in what ways do you feel like elemental has perhaps proven that families are indeed still going to theaters yeah i mean there are so many factors going on with that history for sure those three movies going to disney plus and then lightyear and then our film and you know i i hope i hope that what you just said, Jared, at the, at the end, the latter thing of that, families did return to the theater, and uh, obviously it did really well uh, afterwards uh, on Disney+. Plus. But that, that idea that you know, Pixar films still have that classic sort of energy to, to, to bring people together is what I hope you know, um, um, people take away from all of it. Yeah. Um, earlier, you mentioned, you know, there is a, a love story here. Um, and I, you know, as I was watching, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm getting like a little bit of vibes of, you know, Romeo and Juliet, like people, you know, from uh, opposite sides of the track who shouldn't, um, you know, be with each other. Uh, and there's certainly, you know, culture, there's a culture clash going on here and questions of how people can coexist. Um, so, so I'm really curious, what was the like that original seed of your story? Where did it come from? 
Um, it came from me having fallen in love with someone that wasn't Korean. My grandmother's dying words were, you know, which is like, marry Korean. And she passed away in, in front of my, you know, and the cousins and everyone. And uh, so it's always been this pressure. And so when I fell in love with someone that wasn't, it created a lot of issues at home. And uh, um, uh, that sort of became the seed that started to merge with this other idea that I had of, of a fire character and a water character. And as I was drawing them, uh, um, um, this question of what if fire fell in love with water started to appear. And that was the genesis of all of this. Mm. Okay. So I know that animated films can take um, a long time to say the least uh, in the development and story phase. So uh, given those, those ideas that you had, how close is the final product to you know, that original seed and what, you know, at the time of that original seed, what you envisioned this movie might be. The heart of it has remained the same. Uh, this, this North star of being grateful to those around us that have sacrificed and uh, this, this, this sort of star-crossed lovers story. And uh, that has always remained. The plot has changed a great deal. It, it, you know, the, the, the Pixar process really takes, uh, um, a, a story through its paces, and uh, you learn a lot in terms of how to listen to a story and how to grow it. Um, but the heart of it has always remained the same. And uh, but this film, like to your point, took a long time. It was almost seven years making this thing. But it wasn't just the story that was the issue. It was the characters. Um, they uh, we've we've never done characters that were all effects. Like you know, we've done toys, we've done cars, we've done humans. But to have a character uh, made out of completely out of a gaseous sort of fluid um, material uh, was very difficult and that added some time to it for sure. I mean, I can't tell you the nightmares that it was to just render some of these characters out. Um, but again, it was this magic trick that we were trying to get the audience to not think about how crazy those characters are, but enough that they could believe that they're in this element of fire and water, but more than that, connect to them as characters. Right, right. Um, you, you're already answering a question I was I was going to ask about, like, you know, what were the unique challenges you faced in creating those characters? But let me then let me then take it this direction, because, you know, over the years, um, different technologies have emerged that have have aided you and, and your coworkers jobs and, um, uh, you know, creating different styles and being able to do things with with hair, with water, if it's characters that are swimming, all that kind of stuff. So did you guys have to come up with new technologies here or did, were you able to modify things that had already been done? Um, with the fire character, it was a lot of new technology that was yeah. necessary to build from the ground up. You know, when um, we turned it on, when we turned the fire simulations for the first time and with eyes and everything, she was terrifying. Jared, she was like a Balrog from the Lord of the Rings coming out of Mordor. Like she was a really, the fire was so realistic and so busy. And uh, to try to sort of control it and harness, we needed a, a lot of new technology. Um, uh, one of the instances was um, this machine learning uh, tool that they had created called NST, Neural Style Transfer, where, where they can take a fire simulation and then merge that with a graphic shape. So if you took like a shape of a leaf, a very graphic leaf, and then uh, uh, merged that into the fire simulation through this process, um, it started to control the fire in a very graphic way. And that was amazing technology that was sort of created here and handshaked with uh, Disney, research, or Disney Research in Zurich. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, what's interesting is that 
being an animator anymore, it doesn't necessarily feel like just being an animator is just your only job. Like in ways, you guys are also software engineers. Yeah, yeah. I, I am not, but I definitely learned a lot about that <laughs> sort of handshake. Um, look, yeah. it's such an interesting uh, set of parameters that these characters have. Ember is a light source, so nothing, sh- she doesn't shadow. She creates shadows. So already the animators had to handshake with modeling, had to handshake with lighting, had to handshake with effects, which was really merged all these departments together. And the same with Wade. Wade was a nightmare. Wade was the hardest character out of oh, no. like, like because he re- reflected everything, he refracted everything. And uh, if he was in the basement, he would disappear. If he was oh. in, uh, in the daytime, he would blow out the lens. If, if you slowed down the bubbles a little bit, he would turn into jello. If you got rid of the bubbles, he would turn into Casper the ghost. Every angle, he was so difficult. So the animators not only needed to, you know, understand the character and the movement, they also had to understand the technology enough to wrestle it. And uh, again, then it just formed all these collaborations that were unheard of here at, at this level. Wow. Okay. So hearing all of that, um, I mean, I'm I'm stressed for you guys and what you went through. Was there ever a point where you guys where you started to wonder, like, I, can we do this? Do we have what it takes to do this in the way we want to do it? Yes, I mean, I'll tell you when we first got Ember's fire to control. I mean, like controlled in this sort of graphic way. Um, uh, it was told to me that we could get. one or two close-ups with this technology (laughs) and this is a love story and so you really need those sort of intimate shots where you're looking at the landscape of the face and beginning to fall in love and the fact that we could only get two close-ups with that technology was terrifying and uh, so they continued to rework it and optimize it until we could get you know uh, all of ember but we couldn't get the family and then all of a sudden as time went on and and the stress was uh, to your point, like we were all f- freaking out about, like I don't know if we can get this movie done. Oh, we can get all the, the whole Fire Family and some background characters, and it just kept growing. Wade was on a different track. Every time we started with Wade, we didn't know we could get him done until like the last couple months on the show. He was so difficult. Uh, so it was this sort of given, you know, like I, I think the I think there was a, an interesting carrot that kept leading us forward was there would be some breakthrough with the technology that would just go okay. Another f- a few more uh, uh, weeks on this. Okay, another few more weeks. We're getting closer and closer. And so the whole time you were sort of stressed about it. Jeez. So as, as little things got unlocked, it kind of revealed the bigger, the bigger solutions. Well, that's, I, I applaud everyone's uh, tenacity and uh, determination to not give up then. But at the same time, we don't want the audience to be thinking about the effect the yeah. whole time. Yeah. That's the magic trick about this is that you just want them to, connect with the characters and so it was this you know that there's some weird logic in the movie and uh, um and then most of it was just to say like okay if we go that other way it's going to throw you out of the movie what if right. what if we try this sort of movie logic and uh, um but that priority was all about that sort of connection yeah okay so then in the process of all of that did did you have to like make the hard call and sacrifice any characters Yes. And so we spent a lot of time on Ember. And so the more time we were spending on Ember, that would be getting rid of time on some other characters and their effects. And so then once we were done with Ember, we had a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, not a lot uh, more time left for Wade, but we spent a lot of that money um, um, on trying to perfect his water. Water is some of the hardest effects that uh, um, um, you can do in the visual effects world. And 
that just ate up a lot. By the time we were getting weighed close enough, we had shrunk our budgets for air and earth. And so there was, you know, it's not that characters were gone. We, we, we would lose characters just through the story process, but clearly there were effects that we could not do uh, or, and capitalize on, on toward the end of it. But we got pretty much most of the things that we got. You know, the production team did an incredible job. You know, there's a lot of chicken wire uh, uh, stuff that's going on in the film that uh, um, you wouldn't know, but uh, we <laughs> got most everything. But uh, it, it, there, was, there was some parameters, though, for sure. Um, I know you said this one took seven years. Would you say that's about average for a for an animated film? Um, no, I think Up and Coco and Brave were in those camps, and so there, there. It's not, you know, it's not unheard of, but the average is about four to five. Okay, okay, but still, that's 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 many years of one's life devoted to one one specific title. Um, do you think it takes a a certain kind of person to be able to work in animation because clearly patience is a virtue (laughs) yeah it really is like the sort of the introverted world of when you start to bring something to life for the first time in animation or through drawings Mm -hmm. yeah it's a painstaking sort of you're just left you know frame by frame that's only 24 frames per second here and so you've got to draw every frame out and uh, that first time you've done all that work and then you see it it's just a blip and uh, you make a choice. You either go, was that worth it or was it not? And the folks that say it were worth it have all of those ingredients that you're talking about, that they have patience, mm-hmm. that they have a delight in terms of that wonder of bringing something to life out of, out of drawings. And, that, you know, that, that concept of persistence of vision becomes this sort of religion for animators where you're really trying to uh, watch paint dry to a certain degree. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and that... Um... I'm not. I gotta say, I'm not sure. Sounds fun, but um, but I, there's there's probably something I would learn from it for myself if I actually devoted the time to it. But well, um, well, I mean, like for Ember, for example, Ember, we were doing that. We were like we were throwing all these ideas and, and technology experiments into a big black hole, and you're like, is there anything going to come out of this? For the longest time, and to your point of like that doesn't sound fun. That part was not fun. It's fun to collaborate, <laughs> but waiting game of what's going to happen took forever but then that first time when you're in the theater and uh, um the the artist shows a turnaround and uh, ember blinks for the first time while she's on fire it was quite thrilling that's the part that you go oh this is what's worth it that that came from nothing this there was no character like this before and now there is a fire character looking at us and blinking on the big screen and that becomes sort of the the high or the drug that you're chasing, uh-huh, you know what I mean? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Those victories are uh, they they make it worth it. Um, and, and like you said, in the midst of all of this, I mean, you guys are you know you're facing all those kinds of questions about can you get this done? Um, and it, like you said, your your parents also passed in the midst of all of this. How did that impact? Uh, well, let me put it this way: did that did that find its way into your work at all? Yes, it did. And, and, you know, I've learned a lot of like any creative endeavor that you're in life that you're living just seeps in there, whether you like it or not. There was some things that I was conscious of and some that I was not. Um, But like, you know, when my father died in the beginning of the process, I was in early development, just getting the reels up and going for the first time. And the film had a darkness. You could feel it. It was just a darker film that was just not hopeful. I just wanted to I started off wanting to make a hopeful movie and uh, dealing with that grief there was an amazing support system here that sort of reminded me of why I went into this originally. And so as I was sort of shifting and understanding what 
my parents gave me, it started to fuel um, the film in a positive way again, where it was just about that love. And it, it, it sounds sort of sappy to talk about it, but the love for my parents and the crew's parents, I mean, the crew's connections to their parents and their experiences, that love really drove us through all of those hardships. And uh, um, when my mom passed away toward the end of the production, it, 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 it started to solidify what this whole film was going to be. You know, it was about honoring um, our, our, our loved ones in that way. And uh, through all the, the sort of obstacles that come, it, it's ironic for me that the film started off so slow and it was this sort of pain. But then as it found a connection with people, people began to fall in love with it. And uh, it, the film itself went through a similar journey in the making of it. And, and uh, um, but ultimately that, that love won out fills me with great joy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And, and I got to say, I think you can feel that in, in the fabric of uh, that final product there too. Um, through the years, you, I mean, you have, have had many different uh, department jobs, animator, storyboard artist. Is story, story artist is different from a storyboard artist, correct? Oh, they're, they're the same thing. Yes, they're story. the same. Okay, got it, got it. And then, of course, a writer, director, um, animation. As you've said, it's a very collaborative culture, um, and, and it's one that I have to imagine where uh, folks who are starting out um, to have to have a mentor, several mentors uh, who play a, a big role in teaching the next generation. Who were some of yours? Um, there were. It was the first directors that I had worked with here at Pixar. I started in two thousand. My um, first gig here was on Finding Nemo. And so Andrew Stanton was a real um, role model. The, the, my first film that I had worked on before Pixar at Warner Brothers was The Iron Giant, which uh, Brad Bird had directed. And so he uh, was a, a great influence in my life. Uh, and then after that, it was Pete. And oh, most of the directors that you work with, you learn a lot from. And so it's, but then at the same time, you're also working with a lot of different departments and there are some amazing story artists here that have also become directors that you just keep, you know, it's interesting to talk about to single out role models because it, there are, but at the same time, they're working at Pixar. There is this collaborative, you know, um, play, uh, this vibe that happens because you're with some of these folks for years. It's not nomadic where a movie's done and then you're moving on to another one. We're all here in the same building for, for decades and uh, you, you start to begin to learn from everybody. Yeah. Um, I know one of the people uh, you learned from, you've mentioned uh, Ralph Eggleston, who uh, yes. passed away during the process of this film. Um, he uh, he also had a, did he have a hand in you getting that job on Finding Nemo? Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I came in as an animator, but I just didn't have enough experience. And so I, I, I couldn't get that job. And so I went back to LA and uh, Ralph saw my portfolio and brought me in as an uh, a sketch artist, and uh, he had me designing um, scuba gear and and the the aquarium and the dentist's office on Finding Nemo. And uh, his his passion for the movies is so infectious. His love for the art form has driven so much of his life, and uh, um, it's been a huge loss for the studio uh, to have someone that was the backbone of that love go. And uh, all we can all we can do is to try to keep those passions going um, uh, uh, to honor him, you know. But yeah, he gave me my first job. I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful to Ralph for giving me a job here. I guess, I don't know if we call it a thank you, but you, you paid tribute to him within Elemental? Yes, that's right. If there's, a, there's a couple things. There's an Easter egg where um, 
you know, when you're talking to Ralph, you would, you, he would sort of bring you in, you know, you'd find him at lunch, sit with him at a table, and uh, he would just regale you about Hollywood history. And then at the end of it, he always go, well, that's just my two cents. Uh, and uh, so we have a little sign in the film, if you find it, you know, uh, of Ralph's Cafe and uh, two cents for, you know, a cup of joe or whatever it was. And then uh-huh. at the end, there's a little sort of in memoriam with the blue flame with, with his name and, and several other artists uh, and, and, their, and, and their sort of contributions that they gave to Pixar and, 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 and then my parents after that. And so, which was uh, an idea that Pete Docter, my executive producer, who uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, and, and have learned a great deal from, gave this gift of saying, hey, Pete, you should put the photo of your parents at the end too. And uh, mm-hmm. I was reduced to tears when he mentioned it and uh, forever grateful. I was watching it, so I can I can only imagine how you felt. Um, let's let's uh, kind of start to wrap things up here. I, I want to uh, with continuing to talk about Easter eggs because I, I, the the directors of Wish recently uh, had had said something that they aren't even aware of all of the Easter eggs that animators have put in their movie. Um, I, I have to suspect you might have been the same, but have you learned about more of them? Like even since the movie opened? Yes, yes. The, uh... There was one that I had learned of before the movie opened, but I could never find. There is, um, from Up, there's a character named Doug, the, this talking yeah. dog. And they um, took the fur off of him and replaced it with grass. And they made him sort of an <laughs> dog. And he's hidden in the film somewhere. They mentioned this. And uh, I recently just found it. And then someone online yeah. found it as well. But that was one that I was hunting. I've seen the movie so many times. And I was like, where the heck did they place this one? That's funny. Uh, those those Easter eggs, they reveal themselves in such interesting ways. I also find myself thinking that some things I'm like, oh, I bet that's one. And it probably is not. So like the imagination gets to run wild a bit. Well, well, I wouldn't be too sure about that. They, I, I'm sure the ones that you're finding out are. There's oh. the many inside jokes that the, that the artists have put in. And uh, it's they're crazy. There's so many crazy. Like I couldn't find the Luxo ball for the longest time. And the, what they did with it was cracking me up. There's also um, in the background characters, because there's so many moments where there's just, you know, uh, earth characters and air characters just wandering around in the back. There is a love story that's going on that one of the artists have done where you see in the, in, in, in the background of one of these moments where uh, these two characters see each other for the first time. Then later you'll see them going on a date. Then later you'll see them sort of like embracing each other. Then later you'll see them proposing. And there's this little storyline going on with uh, a couple of the crowd extras that, uh, that they've, they've put in. And the more and more I watch it, the more pieces of it that I'm getting. I'm like, oh, my God, how did they get that in there? I never noticed wow. that. You know, it's hilarious. Well... I might have to rewatch the movie immediately to find that. Um, that's really cool. And then lastly, there's one for the upcoming uh, Pixar movie, Elio. Yes? That's right. Yeah. Uh, the, I, the hint that I will give is that it's in the air stadium section with Gail when uh, they're, they're, they're watching Lutz, this, uh, uh, this uh, air sports athlete, yeah. sort of down on his luck. And, and Wade is cheering him on. And it's in that area where you'll find the Easter egg. Okay. Okay. All right. You've given me a lot to look for, for my second viewing of this, uh, <laughs> of this movie. Um, Peter Stone, thank you so much. This is, uh, this has been fantastic and, uh, congrats on the film. And, um, uh, I know you, you probably can't say what you're working on next, but best of luck on it. <laughs> and, and I wish you all the patience. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> frame by frame in it every day, but uh, thanks Jared. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. 
Well, yeah, Joey, like I just told him, as soon as I'm done talking to you uh, here, I've, I have to go watch this movie again because of uh, all the Easter eggs, all that stuff that he mentioned, little things that are buried in there. But I got to say, I was really uh, kind of holding myself back from becoming emotional as he was talking about, you know, um, dealing with his, the loss of both of his parents throughout the process of this. It's super interesting how um, how his grief kind of became explored, even in the story as he was working on that. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, you can tell that this, all Pixar movies, to me, feel like they have a great deal of backstory related to the person who wrote them, like some little anecdotes of family stuff inspired by their past, whatever. They always have such a, despite how fantastical or whimsical they get, they always are rooted in a very human core. And this one, I think, more so than others, and just... I didn't know what you said about his parents passing away during production until we started talking about all of this. And I think you can really feel like, I mean, obviously it's unfortunate to have those losses, but it is just profound to see how something like that can manifest itself, even in what many people assume is just, you know, a kid's animation movie. So it's, yeah. it's really powerful. Yeah. I mean, all those, uh, all those human emotions that are typically explored so well in, in animated movies, especially Disney Pixar films. So, uh, yeah. I, I'm glad he told this story. And also the fact that it like started from his grandmother saying like, Mary Korean. Um, and he was like, yeah. you know, and then he falls in love with someone who's not like, how do I turn that into a story, uh, that could, uh, you know, work for families. So, um, I, I think it's just really brilliant work and I, I have so me much too. respect for animated filmmakers because, uh, as, as you heard me tell him there, I, um, I do not have patience for that kind of thing. I have patience for other things in life, but not for, um, something like that. So kudos to them. So on that note, uh, that is it for this week's episode of The Awardist. Oh, I do want to say, by the way, Elemental available to stream on Disney+. Plus. Now, officially, that is it for this uh, week's episode of The Awardist. Joey, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jared. Um, this was, do you know, the squirt of ketchup atop the French fry side order of a day. You know, I'm more of a uh, ketchup and mustard kind of person i was expecting that earlier i was not expecting mustard to come in right at the very end but you know what i'm from western pennsylvania so i have to say no ketchup unless it's heinz no mustard um i'm a ranch girl okay that's fair ranch on pizza you know what i'm founding my own company ranch entertainment Ah, ah, I'm dead. All right. Uh, and by the way, um, we would also appreciate if you uh, tell us what you're liking here about the awardist. You can follow, rate the podcast, and Not leave me. that award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We are at EW on X, formerly known as Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall and Joey at Joey Nolfi. Right? That's right. Yeah, there you go. That's right. All right. Uh, Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you back here next week on The Awardist and every day at EW.com. Bye. Toodaloo. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.